following audio is a Sunday sermon from Red Church in Blackburn, Australia. For more information about the church and its ministry, please go to www.redchurch.org.au. We thank you, God, because you are good. We thank you, God, that you are present. We thank you, God, that you are forgiving. We thank you, God, that you direct and give purpose. We thank you, God, that you're going to move history to your ends. You're going to make the world right. So, Father, we just pray now that we'll center ourselves on you. We pray that your spirit will open and soften our hearts to your word. We pray, Father, that what our hearts are yearning to hear from you, that you may answer that as we open your scriptures. We pray this now in your name. Amen. Grab a seat, guys. My name's Mark. If I haven't met you, we are several weeks now into a series which really was an impromptu series. Not impromptu, perhaps from God's perspective, but impromptu from us in the sense that we didn't expect to do this series and felt one day after one of the services at the 5pm that we needed to push into something and really cry out to God and that's what we're going to be doing after the service. First pizza, then prayer. That's a fairly good mix. What I want to do tonight is I want to talk about an element. And I'll open the scriptures in a second, but I just wanted to reframe one of the words that we've been using a lot at Red at the moment, which is the word renew. And if you look up the dictionary definition... There's a sense of renew, which you're probably aware of, and that's to give fresh life or strength to something, someone, a tree, a school program, where we revive something, breathe life into it again. But what's really interesting is that that's actually the secondary definition of renew. The primary definition of renew is this, to resume an activity after an interruption. The couple renewed their wedding vows. They didn't stop them, but they felt there was a need to push in and pick them up in a new way. The transmission of the TV was renewed. I renewed my subscription to Do people subscribe to magazines anymore? Um, To Netflix, of course. There you go. It just rolls. Yeah, we don't renew anymore. There's no renewing anymore. But let me tell you about this one thing called renewing. And what I want to do is I want to bring a secondary, this, this secondary meaning and wrap it around what God wants to do at the moment. Because... Renewal, when God renews a church, brings renewal, renews an individual, renews a city, renews a time, he is bringing life back to it and reviving it. But at the same time, he's also asking and inviting us to renew something after an interruption. So, to explain this, I want to begin with a scripture. Genesis 1, 27 to 28. And what we have here is the opening chapter of the scriptures. And what's happened is 
What's interesting is you have the Spirit of God hovering over the unformed mass, the chaos. And out of this chaos and this unformed mass, the Spirit of God then brings about life, bringing order and purpose. So much of this passage, which actually look at it, it's a creation passage, but also it's a purpose passage. Light is named and given a purpose. Water is a vault. There's a purpose for it between sea, between sky and land. The different stars, the living things. And it goes through this creation thing, which is a giving of purpose until it gets to verse 27. And it says this. So God created mankind in his own image. So there's something about humans that reflects the nature and purposes of God. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them. Now this is absolutely crucial to understand, this concept of him blessing them. There was multiple other stories that existed in the ancient world of the nations around Israel. And they had their own creation myths, as many cultures do. And in the cultures that surrounded Israel, they had stories of God's creating people, but they didn't create them to bless them. They created them to use them. They essentially were slaves to the God's whims and desires, who kept the temples going and feeding the God's desires and wishes. So this here is a radical concept that God actually blesses his creation. Blessing is almost absent from the modern world. We use words like encouragement, but even encouragement, praise occasionally. In Australia, there's this sense where we do it, but we do it begrudgingly and with a lot of humour. And then we'll add, like, don't get too big head, mate. Like, just to make sure the person doesn't get too big a head. But blessing is absent. Blessing is wishing well on someone. It's giving them a gift of grace. And so God's first thing is to bless the humans. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number Fill the earth and subdue it. This is a really, really interesting concept. Because God is blessing, but then he's doing something more. He's giving a purpose and a promise. And so here we have Adam and Eve, the first humans, Adam meaning human. They exist in a place where God's presence is everywhere, in this Garden of Eden. God's presence is so real there that in one of the passages, you just have God sort of strolling around in the afternoon. And so humans exist in God's presence, blessed by him, and they're given this purpose and this promise. And the purpose is to go forth and multiply. Now, have you ever thought about this? If God wanted humans to just stay in the garden, and that to be the end of the story, and they just like hang out there, doing garden stuff forever, never dying, just an endless 
gardening escapade, <laughs> naked. <laughs> Why would he say go forth? Why would he say go? Why would he actually send them out to go into the world and multiply? And it brings up this really interesting possibility, which not many people think about, which is that he wants them to go beyond the garden. Now, the garden is beautiful. It's this habitat created for humans. It's very, very good, the scriptures say. But then humans are told that they will go forth, multiply, and subdue the earth. They will go beyond the garden and subdue it. Now, this is a direct link back to what God did over the chaos of the world. So God's plan for humans was actually to go beyond Eden into the unformed world, cultivate it, to multiply. And by multiplying and teaching their children the ways of God, history would then move to this end. Whoa. And we see what this end is in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 3 to 4. Where it says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be them and be their God. And if the book ends of the Bible is a promise to go into the world, go forth and multiply, and the end is the entire world filled with the glory and presence of God. You see this all through the Old Testament, these verses about, and the world should be covered in the glory of God. So God's plan is to use humans, partnering with them, not use them like the Babylonian gods did, but invite them into this process. To go forth and spread God's presence in the world because we're created in His image. And so, God created you to carry his presence into the world. You are a receptacle of the presence. This is your prime directive. This is the prime reason he created you. There are points when you've sat in your bedroom, perhaps after a social occasion, Maybe you've come home from work and you've been overcome by negative feelings about yourself. How could I say that? What did they think of me? I can't believe this. They may even be swirling around in your head right now. When that is happening, God looks at you and weeps. And he doesn't just weep because, like, what are you thinking that for, you stupid person? He doesn't think that at all. What he actually weeps is, I created you. I want you to see why I created you. I created you to carry my presence into the world. He created you with a purpose and a plan. If you are a human being, no matter what different rankings we have in the world of who's important and who's not those don't matter to God what matters is you are creating his image and you have a purpose and a plan to be his presence carrier into the world this is what a human is and to take it into every sphere 
that wherever humans go, into whatever field of endeavor, whatever workplace, whatever study situation, whatever relationship, whatever group of relationships, whatever culture, whatever activity, whatever dark place, that actually he created you to take that presence. You're his vehicle into the world. But God also gave us free will. Unlike the other myths where the humans were, in a sense, slave robots, just there to follow the gods or be struck down, a snake appears in the garden with a question and offers an alternate way of filling with divinity. But it's not the authentic, holy, huge majesty and transcendence of God. What it is, it's a faux, fake, futile version of God. God's instruction, what in Hebrew is called Torah, his instruction was to humans. His only one instruction was, don't eat of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. Instead, eat from the tree of life. And they break that first Torah commandment. When the snake says, if you break this commandment, you may be like gods. And this is a devastating moment in the biblical story. This is where humans and the world becomes broken. And this has radical consequences. The humans who were in God's presence, in his holy space, the garden is a temple, now find themselves unclean and outside of the gates. They're actually stopped from re-entering by cherubim, angels. Not only are they disconnected from God, they're disconnected from each other, they feel shame, there's anonymity, uh, uh, there's like a clash between men and women. And all of a sudden, the things that they were built for, to go and cultivate the land, to multiply, all of a sudden these things become difficult. Now tilling the land and cultivating the land will be difficult and will be sweat-filled and toil and hard and horrible. Birthing children will now become a painful thing. So what was it like before? Just popping them out. What was that? I think I just had a child. That's okay. Let's just go on with tea here. So this sense of, if you look at it, my jokes, bad jokes aside, what this is, is their purpose is now changed. And so they become disconnected from two key things. First of all, they're disconnected from his presence. That's devastating. They now feel a sense of alienation. So the alienation that they feel from each other, that humans feel, the loneliness that they feel, the disconnection that men and women feel from each other, people feel from themselves, from their work, all of that is really centered on a disconnection from God and His presence. So the key thing here is to realize, as Charles Malik says this, that alienation... Loneliness, 
at its core is about alienation, loneliness and anxiety from not having God's presence with us. So not only are they cut off from his presence, but they're also cut off from his purpose and his promise. So they're cut off from his source of power, they're cut off from his closeness, but then they're cut off from what they're meant to do. So this is a double whammy of lostness, cut off from the presence, cut off from the purpose. Who are we connected to? What are we meant to do? And when you look at so many complaints in the modern world, the sense of lostness that we have everywhere, that despite our scientific advancements, despite our technological advancements, despite our political advancements, despite more knowledge, more information, we still can't solve that basic sense of alienation that people still have. I just read an article about South Korea, one of the world's most technologically advanced countries. I think it was the most interconnected broadband. When the broadband came in, it was the world's most connected place in the world. And people predicted how connected, and this was going to change the culture. And yet now today, the South Korean government is facing an absolute crisis as young adults come into an age where they now have this this term which is called loner culture absolute disconnection. They're building now in Japan and South Korea restaurants for people to go to by themselves. Government policies are being written about how do you then deal with the fact that most people's now existence is going to be one person disconnected. All of that. No matter how much internet connectivity we have, how many government programs go back to this spiritual brokenness in the world. I just want to reframe something for a moment. This is probably at the center. This is not probably. This is at the center of so much of the disconnect you feel with the world, with other people, with yourself. It goes back to this moment. Because we all fell at this point. Donald G. Mostrom says this. We are healthy in the deepest and widest sense of that word only if we are in fellowship with our God. Like an intricate machine designed for a particular use but used for something else, we break down in a variety of ways when not functioning with God. You, I, are like a machine that's created for this particular purpose. And we hum and we sing and we purr, and all the wheels tick over and works perfectly when we're connected to God's presence, being a presence spreader in the world. But the story of human life, the story of our times, the story of human history, is that machine trying to engage in tasks that it was never created for. And so the story is of wheels wearing down, of horrible metallic sounds, of breakages, When the machine is working, it's something it was never made for. Donald G. Mostrom goes on. He says this. When this is happening, when we're disconnected from the presence of God, our minds don't function rightly when they're not in fellowship with God and thinking his thoughts after him. So your mind is also a machine. 
that works only correctly when it's connected to the thoughts of God. He goes, and our emotions are out of balance unless His love and grace are being shared in that area of life. Our emotions don't function correctly and go all over the shop and feel strange things when they're not connected to the presence and not led by the emotions of God. Our wills are perverted and our appetites hurt us, Mostrom says. Our desires and our wills created for God's home. Your wills are created for that end point in history. Your wills long for that point when God's presence will fill the world. When Revelation 21 says in that passage after I just read about dwelling where it says, will there be no longer tears shed? So many of the things that you want in this world are actually things that you think you're wanting, but actually behind them is a greater desire. And what you're wanting behind them is actually God's presence and His fullness and something this world cannot give you. And we get this in the way and we think this is it, but it's not. That's just something that's, that's in the way of what we ultimately want. Now, what happens is humans attempt to fulfill our mandate to go into the world and conquer and subdue it, but we do it through our own strength. We see this in Genesis verse 11, in the Tower of Babel, where it says, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. We don't have a name anymore. We don't have a purpose. We don't have an identity disconnected from God. So we try and do it ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered across the face of the whole earth. Now, think about that. If our original purpose is to be scattered across the whole world in order to spread His presence, this is a direct rebellion against this. Instead of going and participating with God in being presence carriers into the world, no, we want to do it in our own strength. We want to make a name for us. We want to make an identity for ourselves. We want to recreate and shape our own sense of identity, which is everything the world tells you to do. From contemporary politics to advertising to consumerism, everything is just do this, just buy that. Just think this, and you can be like God's. And to this moment where then God says, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. He sends them out again. This is his original purpose. This is go forth and multiply. Are they happy? No. And at this moment where it seems like he's punishing them, what he's actually doing is mercifully he's frustrating our attempts to flourish without him. Because if we do God's plan to go into the world and subdue it in our totally distorted ways, with will and desires out of whack, with our minds led in wrong places, with our emotions all over the shop, and we do that, what we're going to do is we're going to do a sort of weird, mutant version of God's plan for us, and it's going to spread chaos across the world. And that's what happens. It happens in the ancient world. It happens through human history. It happens now. And there's shards of it. In which you can see cultures at certain parts have these moments of truth and beauty and justice. And it just breaks through. But at the moment it breaks through, then human brokenness and injustice and ugliness and corruption come in and tear it down. 
And the world looks like what G.K. Chesterton said is the crash of a treasure ship on rocks. Where you come in and you're picking through the rocks and there's bits of genuine worth and jewels. But then there's broken bits of ship and wood and splinters and bodies. The world is broken apart by humans' attempt to fulfill his plan without his presence. But God does not give up on his people. After the flood, and Noah is put again on dry land, what's really interesting is he tells him to go into the world and multiply and flourish. He's not given up on this plan. When Abraham is called to go out from Ur, he's told that out of him, well, this nation will come and he will grow and multiply out of him. The Old Testament, I'm not, I haven't got time to go through all of them, but it's filled with God bringing this promise back to people, to Israel. And what's so interesting, and this is key, the presence is the destination. The end of history is all of history being filled with him. The destination is the presence, but it's also the road. Because when he appears to Noah, God's presence is there. When he appears to Abraham, God's presence is there. When he appears to Moses, it's in the burning bush. When he appears to Moses at the, on the Mount Sinai, it's on the top of the mountain. When he appears in the tabernacle, his presence is there. He uses his presence to prepare us for the end of time when the world is filled with his presence. And so the presence is so key to faith because the presence shapes us for where we are going. It's the destination and it's the road. And then Jesus comes. And on the cross, he gives his life defeats death and sin and the enemy. So that dividing line, those fiery swords of the cherubim which kept us out of Eden, they're gone now. And we can enter into the holy space. And as he dies in the temple in Jerusalem, the curtain rips from top to bottom, identifying that now the presence has come into the world and we may, as Hebrews says, approach the throne of God with confidence. And all of a sudden, this group of people who have been following Jesus, totally dismayed when he dies on the cross and goes into the grave, and then like, what is happening when he's resurrected in their midst? He says to them at the beginning of Acts, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. In a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The presence is coming back. But this is key. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the ends of the earth. And what is, this, what is Jesus saying here? Go forth and multiply. But wait, wait, because there's a key, key element. And if you forget this, this entire thing will go wrong. You humans have been going out in your own strength and ruining the world trying to do my plan without me. So you have to wait. Church, which is now the humans who have come together, who are now going to live with the presence. A temple Jesus predicts will fall and falls in 70 AD when the Romans destroy it. The new temple is actually the church, and my presence will dwell amongst the people of God in my church, but you are not to move, you're not to engage this plan without the presence. 
So presence must be linked to God's promise and his purpose and his plan. So, this is the renewing of your purpose and your promise that God has spoken over you, the blessing that he gave over Adam and Eve. So when we're in a renewal moment, yes, God brings new life to people's spiritual lives. Yes, he can take a small group who are meeting and change where all of a sudden it comes alive and prayer changes. Yes, he can take worship times where actually all of a sudden you feel the spirit. Yes, he can put in people's hearts a desire to serve the poor and see him amongst the poor. And that when you give the poor even a cup of water, that his presence is there. That happens in renewal moments. But also what happens is you pick up again the reason for which you were built. You pick up again the fact that you were created to be a spreader, a carrier, a receptacle of his presence, and to take that into the world. For some people, that's to go to another country to preach his gospel, to go overseas to show his love to people who don't know it, to go and serve the brokenhearted and poor. For other people, that's to go into whatever vocation you're called to. To some of you, it's to take it into an industry, to your work, to your school, to friendships, even to yourself. To parts of you which you don't want to let the presence into because you're afraid that God might ask you to give that up. And so renewal at this time In this 5 p.m. service, God is actually saying, here it is. You're a machine created for a purpose. You're better than machine. That's the metaphor. You're a human being created for a purpose. Pick it up. Pick it up again. Use it. Don't leave it in the garage gathering dust and rust, pick up and renew and re-engage for the reason that you were created for. And he wants you to do this because, A, we find meaning in this. We find meaning and purpose when we do this. Why? Because this is why you were created. And the alienation and lostness and anxiety that we have when we try and live a life where we're running away from this, or even try and live a Christian life without his presence goes when we renew and re-engage with our purpose and promise that God has spoken over us. So just a few ways of doing this to end. Number one, if you're writing this down, number one, promise and purpose must have the presence. There is no field of human activity that you can flourish in truly in a kingdom paradigm without his presence. You cannot even do Christian things without his presence. The minute Red Church tries to push into Christian things without his presence, we're in trouble. Because promise and purpose without presence is pointless. A lot of peas in that. Thank you. Number two. Promise and purpose must be aligned with his purposes. Some of what we want to do in the world is being frustrated mercifully by God because it's actually not in alignment with what he wants to do. And so when his presence comes, we have to put things on the altar before him. 
and you know that you're holding something back and something is not in alignment when you have this thing and you love this thing or you've got your hopes in this thing and it could be a relationship, a job, an identity, an idea and you go through this process and you know the throne is there and the throne symbolizes giving it to God and you go on this journey and I've done this with some of the biggest key things in my life and you're like, oh, okay, no, I've got this thing and you have this whole rationality of why I don't want to put this there. Well, this is a relationship. Other people got relationships. This relationship's good. We're built for relationships. Why can't I put this relationship here? Maybe I've got to put it on the throne. No, no one else is putting it on the throne. It's okay. And there's this thing where you get to the throne and you get to that service and maybe someone's preaching and you're so close and they'll come down the front and give stuff. I'm going to go. I'll just wait for one more song oh that's the end okay and then you head back and then that moment where you know that you have to put it down and you don't get to put it down like this it's on the throne God it's all good like I'll put it there because I know you're going to give it back Putting it on the throne is not putting it on the throne. Putting it on the throne is when you let your hand go. And you say, God, I'm putting it there. And I am willing, if you don't give it back, I'll still follow you. And I still love you. And I don't even get it. And maybe it just cuts me to the core. But your will, not my will. Your mind, not my mind. Your emotions, not my emotions, God. And sometimes you're going to get it back. Sometimes you're not going to get it back. But the entire concept of putting things before the throne is that it's a process of aligning ourselves. And sometimes it's painful. And so many of us have been tricked by the world which says, if it's painful, avoid it. If it's difficult, step away from it. If it's hard, it's not worth doing. Let me just tell you now, most of the best things in life are often painful, difficult, and hard. That's the foundry in which you find meaning and purpose. And the story of God's people isn't like people who came to faith and then just slid through life in a fairy floss reality. It's actually the people who walked and struggled with God as the presence shaped them in preparations for the presence to come at the end of time. Three, promise and purpose must be walked out in submission this whole thing went wrong with humans at the fall when humans did not want to submit to God. They became impatient. They became discontent. Eve and Adam fell for the serpent's question because already, I think, there must have been discontent and impatience in them. There must have been a little question there. If they fully trusted, the serpent's question would have been repelled. Did God really say that? Did he really teach that? Did he really instruct that? They could not be seduced by that question unless there was a sense of wanting this stuff without God's permission, of wanting to push into autonomy. Satan offers them autonomy and rebellion against God's good authority. Total opposite of submission. And so, now, after Jesus' death on the cross, we're no longer must we face an eternity without him, where again, 
God's grace brings us into His presence. We have to walk this out with submission. And human life is a life in God of constantly bringing ourselves to a position of submission to Him. Again, your will, not mine. That's the channel which the presence and Spirit moves through. The people we see in the Bible who do incredible things for God, these Galilean fishermen, rough, working-class blokes. And Jesus' disciples was a zealot. They were effectively the Al-Qaeda of the day, yet turned around for God. Mary, we see the women in Jesus' community at a time when women were not second-class citizens, but fifth-class citizens. These ordinary people were there not because they were super smart. The Gospels clearly show that. They were not there because they were super talented. They were there because they moved into this place of submission where their knees bent before the Father. Four, promise and purpose must have his purity. God's presence is holy. God is holy. God is transcendent and huge. And there's parts of us which are of the flesh, which are of sin, where we want to have the presence, we want his promise and purpose, but we want to keep this little bit here. Because it's a secret solace. His presence can't move. And whether that's a little reservoir that we keep cordoned off from what God wants to do and we want him and we want this plan and we want to operate like that machine but we just want to keep this bit for ourselves and whether it's greed or envy or lust or jealousy or unforgiveness or bitterness or gossip or whatever it may be for his presence to move fully that must be given to him that becomes a stronghold a behind-the-enemy-lines base that the enemy can use to undo and bring the individual back into a rebellious position against God and his purposes and his plans fall over. Promise and purpose must be contended for with hunger. This is not something that happens by just being in a passive spectator-consumer position. We can do nothing to, to win God's love. We can do nothing to win God's salvation. His grace comes as a free gift. But when we walk out our faith, when we step into what's called sanctification, when we walk into discipleship, that has to be contended for. Paul speaks of training like an athlete. This is something which we must walk into and contend with it for hunger. God is asking who is hungry for my presence. And often people who are hungry are people who are discontent. And for some of you, if you're discontent at this time with the state of the world, the state of your life, God is using that to create in you a hunger. Lastly, promise and purpose must have his power. Whilst you're called to step into it and contend for it, you also must do that, not in your own strength, 
but in his power. If you heard that hunger contending one, you're like, oh, more stuff, more striving. You've misheard what I'm saying. And this is a key, key difference that you must understand, a nuance that is so key to the walk of discipleship. We're called to do this, but we're called to step in with him, him powering us forward. If we miss number six here, we're just going to get a whole lot of religiosity and we're going to get burnt out at some point. He gives us everything that we need. We step forward into our promise and purpose on our knees in prayer, asking for his power to come. He's not asking for people who are super talented. He's asking for people who know that they have to do this with his power and can't do it in his own strength. You can do all things in he who strengthens you. So you have a power that is beyond anything in this world at your fingertips. The Spirit is actually waiting for you to pray about so many of these things that are actually before you as hovering worries right now. God's just like, give it to me. I'll do something with it. And the other throne, this is actually the better throne. There's the throne where you've got to put stuff that you want to hold on to. But then there's this other one where you're walking around with this worry and it's in front of you and you think about all the time and it's, it's, it's consuming you. And then you go, oh, I can give it to God. And you just put it there. God, take this. I can't even do this in my own strength. And that's a good throne. Because you put it there. It's like, wow, okay, release. It's yours. So, what we're going to do now is actually going to ask the band to come forward. And I want to pray into this for you. So let's stand. And I want to do two things that we see in that initial scripture. The first one is, I want to remind you of who you really are. And second, I want to pray a blessing over you. Just as God blessed us in Genesis. So Father, I want to take all of the different constructions and creations and personal towers of Babel that were created to build a name and an identity for ourselves. The plans and purposes which we've engaged in that are not driven by your power, that have walked out not in submission, that have been walked out in confusion, rejection of you, lostness. Father, I want to bring before you that sense of alienation we have of being cut off from your presence, cut off from other people. Even our culture, what Genesis talks about, that tumult between men and women. Father, we know that you're drawing us together at the end of time. When your new Jerusalem will come from the heavens. And we'll see a garden city, which is no temple because you're at the center of it and your presence will fill the world and every name will sing your praises. So Jesus, I want to pray a blessing over people here. These are people created to be carriers of your presence into the world. In this room is an incredible panorama of gifts 
and interests and talents that you've shaped in each of these people. They look different. They are different because you've wanted them to go into the world as carriers of your presence, bringers of your light. And Father, I just want to ask right now in the name of Jesus that your presence will come into them. That it will come powerfully into them. That it will begin to shape them in Jesus' name. That they'll see that all of the different lies that have been told over them about how to have a life of meaning are literally futile vanity on the wind. And the only sense of truth in this world that we are who we're meant to be when we are in you. So Jesus, give us a sense of why you've created us. Bring a moment of renewal where we again pick up the plan and purpose you have for our lives. So in the Holy Spirit, I just want you to come. I ask you to come and just wash over people. Give them a sense of new potentials, new imagination, new things that you want to do. Give them vistas they've never seen before because they're not connected with who they're really created to be. A new Lord of the universe, almighty God, massive, gigantic, transcendent beyond our our imaginations. You want to walk with us and use us in your world. So Father, now as we begin to worship, May your spirit do your work in your name. Amen. We're going to worship, and as we worship, we're going to sing this reality. Let's sing this as a blessing. There's going to be people on the sides that I ask you to come forward and be prayed for. If you need to step into that purpose and presence for you. If you feel you need to kneel in the aisle, come forward, go up the back. Whatever you need to do at this moment just to step into what God has for you, do that. We so often sense and feel to do something like that. But there's this little tug of what will people think. And it takes a step of courage. It takes a step of bravery. And at this moment, God wants to give you his courage and bravery. At this moment, we need people who are courageous in him. You need people stepping forward at this moment. You don't care what the world thinks. And never before has the world been able to look at us from so many different angles, physically, digitally. But at this time, God's heart sings when he sees people stepping forward in courage and submission to him. So let's recognize his presence is here. Let's step into that and let's step into his plans and purposes for us as we worship.